0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. John Updike died on January 27th. Between 1954 and 2008, he contributed literally hundreds of pieces of fiction and poetry, book reviews and essays, to the magazine. This month, Roger Angel, Updike's longtime editor at The New Yorker, We'll read a story from 1992 called Playing with Dynamite.
1: All around them, as he and his wife stood hip-deep in children, marriages blew up. Marriage counselors, child psychiatrists, lawyers, real estate agents prospered in the ruins.
0: Roger, you were Updike's fiction editor at the magazine for more than 30 years. How did you start working with him?
1: I was in the fiction department back then, and uh, William Maxwell... Uh, the writer and also New York editor had been John's editor, and when he left the magazine to become a full-time novelist, uh, I succeeded Maxwell. And it was strange because John is younger by a dozen years than I am, but uh, it was like getting an older writer because he started writing. <laughs> He'd started writing so uh, at such an early age and with such great accomplishment.
0: Can you talk a bit about what it was like to work on his stories?
1: It was a pleasure because he was patient with editing. And and if I suggested that the paragraph needed a little something more, or there was something that didn't seem as clear as it should have been in a certain passage. He was always patient and listened. And then we go through the process of trying to get it right, which good writers always want to do. And they go back to it again and again. And But nobody more than John. We would try a change or a different few words that he'd suggested or that I'd suggested, and he would say, which one sounds better? Which do you think sounds better? Do it over and over again. It always made me feel that I was watching him write.
0: When when he died, we put together a tribute in the magazine of pieces from earlier stories, and uh, you did a lot of work pulling out segments from earlier stories, and playing with dynamite was one of the ones you chose for that. What What is it about this story it stands out well, for you.
1: Well, it's it's a powerful story. Although seems doesn't seem as if it's going to be. It seems it seems quite mundane. It has a rather unpleasant central character, and uh, I won't say what it's about in the end. But it is a very powerful and subversive story. I think one of its very best.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And reading it over to get ready for this for this podcast, I was struck again and again by how much more there is in it than I had realized before.
0: Is there anything we should listen for as you read it?
1: The thing to do is to stay with it because you don't don't like this guy. Stay with it because it is really something.
0: We'll talk more after we hear the story. Now here's Roger Angel reading Playing with Dynamite by John Updike.
1: One aspect of childhood Fanshawe had not expected to return in old age was the mutability of things. The willingness of a chair, say, to become a leggy animal on the corner of his vision. Or the sensation that the solid darkness of an unlit room is teeming with inimical presences. Headlights floated on the skin of Fanshawe's windshield like cherry blossoms on black water, whether signifying four motorcycles or two trucks, he had no idea, and he drove braced every second to crash into an invisible obstacle. It had taken him over fifty years to internalize the physical laws that overruled a ten year old's sense of nightmare possibilities to overcome irrational fear, and to make himself at home in the linear starkness of a universe without a supernatural. As he felt the ineluctable logic of decay tightening its grip on his body, these laws seemed dispensable. He had used them and now was bored with them. Perhaps an object could travel faster than the speed of light, and we each have an immortal soul. It didn't terribly matter. The headlines in the paper, with their campaigns and pestilences, seemed directed at somebody else, like the new movies and television specials and pennant races and beer commercials, somebody younger and more easily excited, somebody for whom the world still had weight. Living now in death's immediate neighborhood, he was developing a soldier's jaunty indifference, If the bathtub in the corner of his eye as he shaved were to take on the form of a polar bear and start mauling him, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Even the end of the world, strange to say, wouldn't be the end of the world. His wife was younger than he and Spryer. Frequently, she impatiently passed him on the stairs. One Sunday afternoon, when they were going down to greet some guests, he felt her at his side like a little gust of wind and then saw her, amazingly reduced in size, kneeling on the stairs, which were thickly carpeted, several steps below him. He called her name and thought of reaching down to restrain her, but she, having groped for a baluster and missed, rapidly continued on her way, sledding on her shins all the way to the bottom, where she reclined at the feet of their astonished visitors who had knocked and entered. She's all right, Fanshawe assured them, descending at his more stately pace for he knew, watching her surprising descent, that she had met no bone-breaking snag in her progress. And indeed, she did rise up as resiliently as a cartoon cat, brimming with girlish embarrassment, though secretly pleased he could tell with having so spontaneously provided their little party a lively initial topic of discussion. Their guests, who included a young doctor, "'set her up on the sofa with a bag of ice "'on the more bruised and abraded of her shins "'and conducted a conversational investigation "'that concluded she had caught her heel "'on the hem of her dress, unusually long "'in the new fashion. "'A little rip in the stitching of the hem "'seemed to confirm the analysis "'and to remove all mystery from the event. "'Yet later, after she'd limped into bed "'beside her husband, she asked, "'Wasn't I good not to tell everybody "'how you pushed me?' I never touched you, Fanshaw protested, but without much passion, because he was not entirely sure. He remembered only her appearance, oddly shrunk by perspective on the stairs in their downward linear recession, and the flash of his synapses that pictured his reaching out and restraining her, and his dreamlike inability to do so. She blamed him, he knew, for not having caught her, for not having done the impossible, and this was as good as his pushing her. She was, in their old age, a late-blooming feminist, and he accepted his role in her mind as the murderous man with whom she happened to be stuck in a world of murderous men. The forces that had once driven them together now seemed to her all the product of a male conspiracy. If he had not literally pushed her on the stairs, he had compelled her to live in a house with a grandiose stairway, and had dictated, in collusion with male fashion designers, the dangerous length of her skirt and height of her heels. And this was as good as a push. He tried to recall his emotions as he watched her body cascade out of his reach and came up with a cool pang of what might be called polite astonishment, underneath a high hum of constant grief, like the cosmic background radiation he recalled a view of a town's rooftops covered in snow beneath a dome of utterly emptied blue sky. His wife relented, seeing him so docilely ready to internalize her proposition. "'Sweetie, you didn't push me,' she said, "'but I think you might have caught me.' "'It was all too quick,' he said, unconvinced by his own self-defense. "'Where the reality of natural law "'had receded any conviction of his own virtue.' Their guests that afternoon had included his wife's daughter by an old and almost mythical marriage. He could scarcely distinguish his stepchildren from his children by his own former marriage, or tell kin from spouses. He was polite to all these tan, bouncy, smooth-skinned, sure-footed, well-dressed young adults, darlings of the advertisers, the now generation, who claimed to be related to him. And he was flattered by their mannerly attentions, but he secretly doubted the reality of the connection. His own mother, some years ago, had lain dead for two days at the bottom of the cellar stairs of a house where he had allowed her to live alone, feeble and senile. He was an unnatural son and father both. Why not a murderous husband? He knew that the incident would live in his wife's head as if he had, in fact, pushed her, and thus he might as well remember it also for the sake of marital harmony. At the Central Park Zoo, the yellow-white polar bears eerily float in the cold water behind the plate glass, water the blue-green color on a pack of cool cigarettes, the last cigarettes Fanshaw had smoked, thinking the menthol possibly medicinal. And if a polar bear dripping wet were to surface up through his bathtub tomorrow morning while he shaved, the fatal swat of the big clawed paw would feel like a cloud of pollen. Things used to be more substantial. In those middle years, as Fanshaw gropingly recalled them, you were hammering out your destiny on bodies still molten and glowing. One day he had taken his children ice skating on a frozen river. Its winding course miraculously become a road, hard as steel, hissing beneath their steel edges. As he stood talking to the mother of some other young children... His six-year-old son had fallen at his feet without a cry or thump, simply melting out of the lower edge of Fanshawe's vision, which was fastened on the reddened cheeks and shining eyes, the perfect teeth and flirtatiously curved lips of Lorna Kramer, his fellow parent. A noise softly bubbled up through the cracks in their conversation. The little body on the ice was whimpering. And when Fanshawe impatiently directed his son to shut up and get up, the muffled words, I can't, rose as if from beneath the ice. It developed that the boy's leg was broken. Just standing there, complaining about the cold, he had lost his balance with his skate caught in a crack and twisted his shin bone to the point of fracture. How soft and slender our growing skeletons are. Fanshawe Once his wife and the other woman and their clustering children had made the problem clear to him, carried the boy in his arms up the steep and snowy riverbank. He felt magnificent doing so. This was real life, he remembered feeling, the idyllic Sunday afternoon suddenly crossed by disaster's shadow, the gentle and strenuous rescue, the ride to the hospital, the emergency room formalities, the arrival of the jolly orthopedic surgeon in its parka and ski-doo boots, the laying on of the cast in warm plaster strips, the drying tears, the imminent healing, children offer access to the tragic, to the great dark that stands outside our windows, and in the urgency of their needs bestow significance their fragile lives veer toward the dangerous margins and measure the breadth beyond the narrow path we have learned to tread. It wouldn't have happened, of course, his first wife said, if you had been paying attention to him instead of to Lorna. What does Lorna have to do with it? She was the first one to realize the poor kid wasn't kidding. Lorna has everything to do with it, as you perfectly well know. This is paranoid talk, he said. This is Nixon-era paranoid talk. I've gotten used to your hurting me, but I'm not going to have you hurting our children, Jeff. Now we're getting really crazy. Don't you think I know why you decided to take us all ice skating when poor Timmy and Rose don't even have skates that fit? It was so unlike you. You usually just want to laze around reading the Times and complaining about your hangover and watching Wide World of Golf. It was to see her, her or somebody else. That whole party crowd, you don't get enough of them Saturday night anymore. Why don't you go live with them? Live with somebody else, anybody except me. Go, go. She didn't mean it. But it was thrilling to hear her so energized, such a fury, her eyes flashing, her hair crackling, her slicing gestures carving large doomed territories out of the air. At that age, Fanshawe saw now, we are creating selves, potent and plastic, making and unmaking homes, the world in our hands. We are playing with dynamite. All around them, as he and his wife stood hip-deep in children, marriages blew up. Marriage counselors, child psychiatrists, lawyers, real estate agents prospered in the ruins. Now in old age, it remained only to generate a little business for the mortician and an hour's pleasant work for the local clergyman. Just as the insurance salesman had at last stopped approaching him and the movie makers had written him out of audience demographics, so the armies of natural law, needed all over the globe to detonate dynamite where it counted, left him to wander in a twilight of inconsequence. In early August, a pair of birds decided they had to build a nest on the Fanshaws' porch. They were warblers too far north, if he could trust his eyes and the battered old bird book. Something must have gone wrong with their biological clocks. It was too late in the season for nesting, but even more willful than children, they persisted while warbling back and forth furiously and piling up twigs and wands of hay on the small shelves created by the capitals of his porch pillars. The twiggy accumulations blew off, or Mrs. Fanshawe briskly knocked them off with a broom. She had always been less sentimental than he... It was her clean porch and her porch boards that would be spattered with bird shit. But the warblers kept coming back as children keep demanding to go to an amusement park or to buy a certain kind of heavily advertised candy until finally the adult world wearying they have their way. A pillar next to the house afforded shelter enough from the wind. The twigs and grass accumulated And from its precarious pile, the stone-colored head of the female bird haughtily stared down one afternoon when the Fanshaws returned from a day in town shopping. The warbling ceased. The male had vanished. Then, after two weeks, the female, it dawned on the fanshaws had vanished. Vanished without a warble of goodbye. All the time she'd been in the nest, her profile had radiated anger. Getting out the stepladder, Fanshawe fetched down the empty, eggless nest, its rim tidily circled round with guano. Its rough materials worked in the center to a perfect expectant cavity. A nest in vain. Whatever had those birds been thinking of? His impulse was to save the nest. His mother had always been saving birds' nests, setting them in bookshelves or on top of the piano. But his wife held out an open garbage bag, as though the innocent wild artifact were teeming with germs. Birds nest shouldn't go in garbage bags, he thought, but dropped it in. We're in this together, he aimlessly thought, as in the shade of the porch his wife stared up at him with shining dark eyes, trying to control her impatience as he wrestled with his sentimental scruple. At his fifth and a guest's birthday party, A piece of cake mysteriously vanished from the plate in front of him and reappeared a few seconds later in his lap. He had never touched it, so it must have been a miracle there in the candlelight and childish babble. He could still see it lying on his corduroy lap, the cake peeping out from its inverted dish, a chocolate cake with caramel icing of a type only his mother had ever made for him. Its sugary stiffness, most delicious, where the icing between the layers met the outside layer in a thick, sweet tea. A few years later, lying in bed with a fever, he had seen a black stick at a slight angle hop along beyond the edge of the bed like one of the abstract sections of Fantasia. In those years, the net of the physical world was stretched thin and held a number of holes. When he was in the fourth grade, his new glasses vanished from his pocket in their round-ended case with its murderous metallic snap. And a week later, cutting across a weedy vacant lot, thinking of them and how hard his father would have to work to buy him another pair, he looked down, and there the case was, like a long egg in the tangled, damp grass. Inside it, the glasses had become steamy, as if worn by an overexcited, myopic ghost. Perhaps this was less a miracle than the transposed birthday cake, but the fact that he had been thinking of them at that very moment made it the strangest of all. Could it be that our mind does secretly control the atoms? On that possibility, Fanshawe had never quite broken his childish habit of prayer. Yet staring at a model airplane that had unaccountably disintegrated during the night, or confronting the bulging shadows at the head of the stairs, it was hard to think of God and Jesus. One seemed to be down among frivolous demons in a supernatural no more elevated in its aims than a Disney animated feature. That curious cartoon lightness and jumpiness had returned. Fanshow would find himself in a room with no knowledge of how he got there, as if the film had been broken and spliced. As he lay in bed, the house throbbed with footsteps, heard through the pillow that fell silent when he lifted his head. Perhaps it had been his heartbeat. In the sedate neighborhood where he now lived, everyone was old, more or less, For years, he had watched the neighbor to his right, the widower, slowly deteriorate, his stride becoming a shuffle, his house and yard gradually growing shabbier and shaggier, inch by inch, season by season, in increments so small that only a speeded-up film would show the process. The two men would converse across the fence from time to time. Fanshawe once or twice offered to do some pruning for his neighbor, no, thanks, would be the answer. I'll get to it when I'm feeling a little more lively. We look ahead and see random rises and falls. The linear diminishment so plain to others is invisible to us. One Saturday morning, a fire engine appeared along his neighbor's curb, though there was no sign of smoke. The fireman who had moved up the front walk with some haste stayed inside so long that Fanshaw grew tired of spying. An hour later, with the fire engine still parked there, its great throbbing motor wastefully running, a small foreign convertible appeared, and a fashionably dressed young woman, all things are relative, perhaps she was 40, uncoiled rapidly out of the low-slung interior, flashing her long, smooth shins and clicked up the flagstone walk. This was his neighbor's daughter, who explained to Fanshawe later, at the party after the funeral that her father had been found by the cleaning lady, sitting up in his favorite chair, shaved and dressed in a coat and tie, as if expecting a caller. So that was death, Fanshawe realized, a jerky comedy of unusual comings and goings on a Saturday morning, followed in a few days by a funeral and a for-sale sign on the house. Thank you for being such a good neighbor to my father, the daughter said. He often mentioned it. But I wasn't, Fanshaw protested. I never did a thing for him. Why had the dead man benignly lied? Why had the cleaning lady called the fire department and not the police? And why had the fireman never shut off his engine, discharging carbon monoxide and consuming fossil fuel at taxpayer expense? Fanshaw didn't ask. He often felt now going through the motions of living, shaving, dressing, responding to questions, measuring up to small emergencies, but he was enacting a part in a play at the end of its run while mentally rehearsing his lines on the next play to be put on. It was repertory theater, evidently. When he remembered how death had once loomed at him so vivid and large that it had a distinct smell "'like the scent of chalk up close to the schoolroom blackboard,' "'he marveled rather patronizingly. "'When had he ceased to fear death, or, so to say, to grasp it? "'The moment was as clear in his mind "'as the black-and-white striped gate at a border crossing, "'the moment when he first slept with Lorna Kramer. "'How inky black her eyes seemed "'amid the snowy whiteness of the sheets. "'There was snow outside, too,' "'Hushing the world in sunstruck brilliance. "'Meltwater tapped in the aluminum gutters. "'There had been a feeling of coolness, "'of freshly laundered sheets, "'of contacts never before achieved "'by fingertips icy with nervousness. "'He had peeled off her black lace bra, "'her back arched up from the mattress "'to give him access to the catches, "'almost reluctantly.' knowing there would be a white flash that would obliterate everything that had existed of his life before. She had smiled encouragingly, timorously. They were in it together. Her teeth were, after all, less than perfect, with protuberant canines that made the bicuspids next to them seem shadowy. Her pupils were contracted to the size of pencil leads by the relentless light. He had never seen anything so clearly as he saw her now, the fine mechanism of her, the specialized flesh for her lips, the tripwires of her hair. He got out of the bed to lower the shade. The sight of her was such a blinding assault. A dull reddish bird, a female cardinal, was hopping about on the delicately tracked-up snow beneath the bird feeder a story below, pecking at scattered seed, a whole blameless town of roofs and smoking chimneys and snow-drenched trees stretched beyond under an overturned bowl of blue light that made Fanshaw's vision wince. He drew the curtain on it and in merciful twilight returned to where Lorna lay, still as a stick. He heard the blood striding in his skull. He felt so full of life. Sex or death, you pick your poison. That had been forever ago. She was still younger and sprier than he, but all things were relative. He did not envy those forever ago people for whom the world had such a weight of consequence. Like the Titans, they seemed beautiful but sad in their brief heyday, transition figures between chaos and an airier pantheon.
0: That was Roger Angel reading Playing with Dynamite by John Updike. The story was first published in The New Yorker in 1992 and is collected in The Afterlife and Other Stories, published by Knopf. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff, wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened
2: after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: Roger, one thing that Updike did throughout his career was return to characters that he had uh, raised in other books or in other stories. He did it with The Maples, with Henry Beck, with Rabbit, of course. I, I think Jeff Fanshawe comes up in a few other places, too. Why do you think he kept uh, going back to people? Well, I
1: think that Jeff Fanshawe is John Updike, I really do, (laughs) and there's no doubt about it. And John was in his 60s, just turned 60, I think, and it's really a story about old age, and it's about someone who was moving away from the daily world and from his wife and from his children. He can't tell his children from his stepchildren his wife seems to be sort of a personification of death because she has no interest in a bird's nest. Even something as innocuous and full of life as a bird's nest, she wants to throw in the garbage can. Mm-hmm. And then it shifts. And then it shifts. And this is about it's about sex and it's about life. Looking back on life and saying, what, when do I become alive? When do I become immortal? And he becomes immortal in the end. He's he's floating over the the town like a god. Mm-hmm. And looking down at these uh, these little beings below him, and all because of sex. And this is not romance, because what he's thinking about here Facing Death is somebody named Lorna Kramer. And it turns out that her teeth, when he's about to get in bed with her, he notices that the teeth are uneven. And they're, they're not so perfect. They're not so perfect, <laughs> and her hairs are tripwires, and tripwires are what set off minds. So this is about sex. It really is, and the power of sex Sex or death, you pick your poison, is what he says. And this is something that old people go back to all the time in their thoughts, I think, and all of us do, most of our lives, we go back into what really matters, What, what is it that keeps me alive? And uh, he has also dismissed God and Jesus very specifically in the story. It's, uh, it's just a versive story in a way, and a very, very powerful one.
0: Mm-hmm. All of the language he uses, particularly in that in the sex scene, is so violent and sort of sneaky. You know, none of it yeah. is none of it is pleasant.
1: Well, the sneaky thing is that it's full of repetitions from earlier things in the yeah. story. The bird comes, another bird is there. Lorna's lying in bed still as a stick, which recalls the stick that he sees moving across his bed.
0: There's so much foreshadowing in the story. I mean, obviously the, the sort of punchline of the story is that Lorna Kramer turns out to be the second wife, which you don't realize at first. But he's he kind of sets it up even in the language where she's first introduced. He calls refers to her in one line as the other woman, or yes. he seems to be just dropping hints all along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that that uh, John all through his writing life kept returning to uh, familiar themes, and the power of sex uh, is one of the ones that that is very significant to him. Almost, almost even as a very young man, which is unusual for a young man. Uh, to be writing about sex and uh, to recognize right away what, it, what it's going to mean to him.
0: Getting back to the idea of Fanshaw as a very unappealing character, he's, he seems to be so driven by the observation of himself. You know, he's car- his son's broken his leg, he's carrying him up and he feels magnificent.
1: He has no sympathy at all for the fallen boy. Nothing. 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 And when he's
0: fighting with his wife, he finds it thrilling to see her so energized. He's quite happy she's full of rage. But all this
1: is filtered through Fanshawe's view of this in the past. So he's thinking about himself, thinking about these things. He's not there anymore. This has gone by. So it's a different view of time, which runs all through Updike's work. It's a different view of time. Even his young characters are aware of themselves at a different time. Mm-hmm. it's because part of John's understanding of, of himself as a writer and his characters is he sees more than his characters do. He knows more than they do. In that extraordinary story, he writes at the age of 24, Snowfalling in Greenwich Village. is a story about a young couple that has just moved into their Greenwich Village apartment. They'd moved out of a ratty place into a better apartment. And they're beginning their life, and her best friend is there. The point of the story is to show how callow they are that they hardly know anything their lives are ahead of them, and yet he knew enough as a writer to stand aside from that and to and let us look at them with a sort of a sense of amusement and uh, and love at the same time mm-hmm. he He knew so much it's astounding at an early age it just so it's just the most miraculous thing about him
0: and what's funny in that story is that he, the the young husband is tempted. To have yes. an affair in that yeah. story, it doesn't do it. Yeah, it's it's a sort of precursor is, to the absolutely. later stories. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, and in the last word are how close they were. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Now, Updike returns over and over to certain themes from his own life: his parents, <clears throat> his childhood, the divorce, the infidelities. Yes. The
1: divorce is very significant to him, and he goes back to Pennsylvania again and again, and he goes back sometimes to the very same place: to the farm, to his father, to his mother on the farm. Uh, and other writers have done this as well. This is, it reminds me, when he goes back this often, the way Maxwell used to go back to his hometown of Lincoln, Illinois, uh, and Maxwell uh, returned, a wonderful writer, returned again and again to his own mother's death. I once counted up, and his mother died nine times in our <laughs> His mother died in the flu epidemic when Maxwell was 10 years old, so no wonder. And... Uh, John doesn't have that particular need, but even in his early stories, you can see him saying goodbye to Pennsylvania, which is so interesting. But later later on, he keeps coming back over and over again to his mother and doing it over again, and in many cases doing the same thing over again, but doing it better.
0: Yeah, he did it a lot in, in the last 10 years. Yes, he, in the last yeah, 10 years. Yeah. So you mentioned John was 60 when he wrote this story and Fanshawe is 60. And yet he writes about him as, as living in death's immediate
1: neighborhood. Yes, well, you know, that's 16th. true of John. I mean, John became very old at an early age, and Rabbi Angstrom dies at 56. That's not, dies of old age, but really, of a heart attack, of an ancient old guy, fat old guy dying of a heart attack at 56. And John himself always seemed to present himself as being older and said, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to do this much longer. He was in full flow of a great endless career of writing. He said, oh, I don't think I can do this again. So all oh, my writing days or my short story days are probably behind me. And I would laugh. And he said, Have I said this before? And you'd say over the phone, I said, Yes, I've heard this before.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Rabbit was not Updike.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the reverse. That's where I, I think that the extraordinary thing about Rabbit and the, those, the other three great books, the whole work taken together, first of all, is written in the present tense and there's a lot of movement in it and a lot of sound and the radio is always going on every time Robert gets into his car turns on the radio and the sound of what the present day world whether it's Nixon, whether it's Vietnam whether it's uh, something racial uh, the immediate is is always there and I think that these novels are one place where John really specifically tried to screen himself out John Updike, the writer, is not there they are largely in dialogue, which he doesn't do in other books. There are very few moments where he allows the great beauty and power of his sentences to take over. Once in a while this happens in, when Rabbit is mentally thinking over something or one is running has sort of a, a train of thought. and the train of thought, sometimes you see a little trace of Updike coming mm-hmm. up. But uh, mm-hmm. And that's not true in the other books.
0: Yeah. Now, Abduh once said that of all the things he tried to write, stories were what gave him the most immediate pleasure and the most gratification. Why do you think that was for him?
1: I think that the short story, because it's, it's it is short and it's something you can get it you can get done. You get an idea and do writing and and then do some more writing of another kind later on was very appealing to him. And also the whole process of publication was so fascinating to him. He loved proofs. He loved see books through to the end. He loved type. He loved the editing process. All this was uh, something that deeply interested him. And then, of course, writing fiction allows him to do different things very quickly, mm-hmm. a different kind of a story. That wonderful early story of his called Unstuck, where the wife and the husband, suburban wife and husband, have a car stuck in the snow outside, and they're going to get the car out of the out of the snow. And and he's in driving, trying to get the car, but she's pushing the car. Then they get out and turn down. The, he starts pushing the car. She's driving. And they're rocking it back and forth. He's pushing hard. she's a push hard. And they rock forward, rock back, rock forward. It's about sex. And the car finally pops out, and they jump out. And then he says, you were great. And she said, so were you. <laughs> Hilarious.
0: <laughs> and the whole time the neighbor's watching. <laughs> it's about
1: sex. It's, it's about the sexual act. It's, they're doing it. They're in yeah. the car, out of the snow.
0: What do you think we're going to remember Updike for?
1: Well, it's too soon. I can't yeah. I can't go in that direction. I mean what I don't like about having this conversation about yeah. John is that it's these conversations are already pushing him away and yeah. pushing him into the past. Um, the sad part to me is that he did die, although he seventy six is not, not young, but I think he was in full career and I would I would look forward to what he's gonna do for the next ten years. I could hardly wait. What a writer. Thank you, Roger. Thank you.
0: You can read Remembrances of John Updike by Jeffrey Eugenides, Joyce Carol Oates, E.L. Doctorow, and many others on our website, newyorker.com, where you can also find dozens of Updike stories. You can download many previous fiction podcasts at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.